rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Hi everybody, and welcome to episode 17 of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Meyer, and we're going to jump right in, uh, starting with a kind of an email. Actually, it's a message I got on Facebook in response to a couple episodes ago where I pointed out that there was a Wonder Woman reprint, which was weird because it was reprinting the start of the first story of her not having any powers, and it was less than 10 issues or so or actually it was less than 20 issues before they were reprinting it, so I thought that was weird. And so Michael Bradley wrote in to give me some more information about that. So he says, the fact that Wonder Woman issue, that, that Wonder Woman issue was reprinted there is very peculiar. 197 reprinted 181, and 198 reprinted 183. Peculiar choices given how, both, uh, how recent both were, but even more so when you realize that both 181 and 183 ended on major cliffhangers. The only thing I could think of is that 196 was Mike Sikowski's last issue. He was writing and drawing both Supergirl over an adventure and Wonder Woman at this time, and then left both, then didn't do any work for DC for three or four months, and when he did, it was only as an artist, not a writer. I wish I knew the circumstances behind his departure. It could be he just up and quit or got fired from the books. It's been said that he had quite a temper and drank heavily in later years, unfortunately. If his departure was sudden, that would explain why the two reprint issues were there, though not the peculiar choices of issues to reprint. Anyway, it just so happens I'm currently reading through the four trade paperbacks DC put out of that era, so maybe once I finish them out I can shed more light. Oh, and while on the subject of Supergirl, yeah, she went through a lot of costumes during this period. Many of them were fan-submitted ideas. Readers could send in costume ideas. DC ran a few pages in various comics in the early 70s, showing them off, and Sikowski used several of them in stories. The skimpy one from the cover of Adventure 409 was a fan idea, as was the full bodysuit on the cover of 412 and 413. Without looking at the issues where they ran those pages, I guess almost all of the one-off costumes used on the covers were fan ideas. And that is Michael Bradley, who hosts, by the way, uh, The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and was also on this on this show just a couple uh, episodes ago, so that was cool. Um, thank you, Michael, for writing in that. Uh, that is really interesting. I did not know that 181 and 183 landed on cliffhangers. So that makes those stu those stories really weird to reprint. So um, I don't know what they were smoking at that uh, at that time, but it was the early 70s, so who knows? So thank you, Michael, for writing in. And uh, sorry it took so long to get uh, that read, read on the air. He actually had that sent to me like right after I did episode 15, and then I recorded the last episode without even looking. So I apologize, but thank you. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding bullet.
The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com Presenting Superman. Okay, so moving right along, we're going to go into the books real quick. Um, we have, uh, we start off with, uh, this month we're covering January 1972, uh, the second year of, Super, of the new Superman. Uh, we're going to start off with a memorable book, Superman number 247, which was cover dated January 1972 with a November 11th, 1971 release date. Uh, the cover is by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, and it's probably one of the more famous Superman covers, uh, where we see Superman standing uh, at the bottom of the page looking like he's uh, trying to have a bowel movement while he's surrounded by uh, the Guardians of the Universe saying that he's guilty of crimes against humanity. And so that's pretty interesting. Uh, the story, uh, the first story, is entitled Must There Be a Superman? Written by Elliot S. Magan. The art is by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. The editor was Julie Schwartz. Uh, and of course, Superman's created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, although they weren't getting credit at this time. Uh, now, to show you how important this story was, um, this story is, has been reprinted numerous times. The ones I've been able to find so far are uh, the greatest stories, the greatest Superman stories ever told, hardcover from 1988 to celebrate Superman's 50th birthday, uh, the greatest Superman stories ever told, trade paperback from 89, which I believe is just the hardcover in trade paperback, uh, Superman in the 70s, trade paperback from 2000, Superman, the greatest stories ever told, volume one, trade paperback from 2004, and Superman in the in brightest day, trade paperback from 2008. Which is pretty cool, considering it's just a considering it's a Green Lantern book, not a Superman trade. So that's how important this is. Plus, it's also picked by Jeff Johns, so that's kind of cool too. So we begin this uh, we begin this story with Superman in the midst of a mission from the Guardians of the Universe to save our universe from a pod of yellow alien spores, which is probably why the Green Lanterns can't help. And unfortunately, this part of the galaxy is full of red stars, which is slowly weakening Superman. Uh, when brute strength doesn't work to stop him, a runaway red star gives Superman an idea. Fusing together a myriad of meteoroids, Superman creates a small, dense planet, and then pushes it through a crowded solar system to pick up some atmosphere. Then, with one last shove before passing out, he shoves the planetoid into orbit around the runaway star which also attracts the pods, which end up forming a ring around the planet. So Superman's body then, be, then comes to rest on, a, on the ring of pods, where he is later rescued by Green Lantern Katmatui and brought to Oa. And she places him inside the solidified light beams of the main power battery to heal. And while inside, the Guardians decide to implant a subconscious notion that his influence on Earth is interfering with human progress. Once healed, the Guardians give, uh, give Superman a tour of Oa, uh, while also subtly checking to see if their little implant took. They also demonstrate a, a sphere to him that contains the complete history of the galaxy, and they show this by replaying events from a recent adventure that took place, that was actually uh, shown in Justice League of America number 86, 
which involves the League cleaning up the pollution of an alien world, while Superman tells his inhabitants that they have to take care of their own world or things will just get bad again. So Superman heads back to Earth, uh, wondering if he really is doing more harm than good. When he arrives on Earth, he flies over California, where he sees a farmer slapping around a young boy worker, while other workers just stand there and watch. Landing between the farmer and the boy, Superman stops the farmer, while the other workers start speaking up, rooting for Superman to slap the farmer around. Trying to find out what's going on, Superman talks to the boy, who's named Manuel, and is given a tour of the little village the little, wor the, the little workers wow, and is given a tour of the village the workers live in. The houses are all dilapidated, so the workers all come out basically demanding that Superman rebuild them. Superman begins having, giving a speech about, uh, about them having to learn to do things for themselves when suddenly an earthquake strikes. While he can't stop the earthquake, Superman does burrow underground and uh, smooth things out to lessen the impact. When he returns to the surface, he sees that all the homes have been destroyed. So he goes ahead and rebuilds them, and then gives the speech that he tried to give before, telling them that they must be guardians of their own destinies. Superman then leaves, promising to keep in touch with Manuel, and as he gets close to the WGBS building, he sees an emergency bulletin on a teleprompter about a water spout threatening a pleasure cruiser in the mid-Atlantic. Meanwhile, back on Oa, the Guardians watch, pleased that their task is completed, and saying that now they just need to let time take its course. And like I said, this is one of the big deal Superman stories of this era. In fact, just about any era. Um, this is one of those timeless ones. Now, uh, there's an interview uh, with Elliot S. Magan in the uh, foreword to Kingdom Come, the uh, graphic novel. And he might have even mentioned it somewhere in the novelization. I don't know. I haven't read that. But he's also mentioned it um, in a couple of interviews as well, as well as an interview he gave for Krypton Chronicles. That this story actually was started by an idea given to him by Jeff Loeb, who, as many of you know, um, he later would go on to write the movie Teen Wolf before getting into comics, uh, where he did stuff like Challengers of the Unknown, uh, that miniseries. He did the Batman Long Halloween. Uh, Bat, uh, Superman for All Seasons. Uh, what else did he do? Uh, all those Halloween specials for Batman. And then going over to Marvel, he recently did The Hulk, or Hulk, with the Red Hulk story. And of course, he's got all those Spider Man Blue, Incredible Hulk Gray, Daredevil Yellow. Uh, it's supposed to have Captain America White, but they haven't done more than, I guess, zero issue of that so far. Um, and of course, he's also working. He also worked on shows like Smallville and stuff. So Jeff Loeb's a pretty big deal. He was a lot younger when this story was done, but um, he apparently his family had become friends with Elliot Magan uh, through uh, Elliot's college. And he was over for dinner one night and apparently mentioned that he um, he'd been asked to come up with some Superman stories. And Jeff apparently presented him with this idea. Well, by the time it was decided by Julie Schwartz that this would be the, the story to go with, apparently uh, Elliot had forgotten and went through the whole thing and didn't realize it until later when Jeff was like, hey, this is the story I gave you an idea for. So I guess I should have read it um, to give it proper credit that it was uh, Jeff Loeb on Plot Assist, I guess. Probably the best way to put it. Um, but that's the big story about how this came about. Now, this also apparently has effect, affected the way Elliot wrote the story, uh, Superman stories later on. 
because it gave him an idea and a sense of what kind of character Superman was and the kind of stuff he wanted to bring to the character in his stories. And of course, uh, anyone that knows Superman comics uh, knows that Elliot is that does become excuse me that Elliot does become a major factor in the Superman stories uh, going forward from this point, including the uh, two uh, Miracle Monday and by some Krypton novels that came out uh, to coincide with the two movies, even though they have nothing to do with those movies, with the first two Superman movies. Um, so, just I guess that helps put it in perspective a little bit. This is a big deal Superman story. Um, now, as far as the negatives with this story, there um, it's not a perfect story. Um, with all those red stars, it, it seems a shame that the Guardians couldn't have found someone else to help them with this. Um, then again, if they were trying, if they were trying to do something for Superman, um, it makes sense that they would ask him, uh, since the, the knowing that the Red Stars would be a problem for him. However, uh, it seems also kind of evil that they would go through all that just to implant that suggestion in his head. Um, uh, I mean, basically what we're getting the idea is that Superman basically almost died, um, floating out in space, losing his powers, and uh, they went through all that just to implant in his head something that, I mean, he could have died here, literally, so I don't know if maybe they just took the, took an opportunity since they had him. I'm not sure. Also, um, I thought it was interesting that his powers are dwindling. I mean, he's constantly telling the whole time he's getting tired. He doesn't know how much longer he's got. He's got to hurry. So he creates a freaking planet. I mean, Come on, the guy created a planet with low, with his powers almost dwindling. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, on the positive side, though, the art is great here. Um, unlike last episode where I talked about um, some uh, was it the action issue where Swan and Anderson put lines on people's faces and to try to show you know the skin moving around. Basically, all it did was make them look old. Here. They're drawn a little thinner. I don't know how they did. They must use a different pen tip or something. Um, but it just makes the skin look like it's moving around. Doesn't make them look old. Also, it's finally nice to see Superman refuse to help people. And I know that sounds wrong. But let me let me explain. A lot of the times, a lot of the stories I've been covering um, have had a lot of instances where Superman is just expected to help, and he does. Uh, there's a volcano on the other side of the world. Superman, help us. He's there, putting out, taking care of the volcano. But it's nice to hear, to see um, where it's a situation where these people uh, can help themselves. So Superman finally says, no, you can handle this on your own. You can do this. You don't need me. And it's nice because otherwise it, it kind of looks like... On one hand, it looks like he's treating them as pets, but on the other hand, it's like they're treating him as a not as a pet, but as a slave. So it's nice to finally, you know, finally have him do that. So maybe even things out. So it's Superman has helping people that truly need it instead of, you know, helping the ladies cross the street. So it's finally nice to see that. Now a glimpse at the man behind the mild-mannered facade of the gentleman reporter. When he's not being the mighty Superman, what is he being? For the answer, treat yourself to this tale in a series that shows the drama, the excitement, and the humanity of the private life of Clark K.
Kent. All right, and for the first installment of Private Life of Clark Kent, we have Win on Earth. And I'm going to read these credits basically as they show up on here because they're kind of weird how they decide to do that. Uh, the writer is Denny O'Neill. That's normal. But the art is by C. Douglas Swan and M. Clyde Anderson. And you don't usually see it written that way. And uh, editor, and for the first time, this is his full name, but this is the first time we've actually seen it written in one of these stories since, I, since I've started this. The editor is Julius Schwartz. Not Julius Schwartz, Julius. So that's cool. And of course, Superman's created by Jerry Siegel and Jim Schuster. In the reception area at WGBS, we see Clark Kent in the, on the TV giving an editorial about the rising crime rate among youngsters, while Jimmy tries to have a conversation with the receptionist named Amy. She doesn't like the editorial because the reality of youth crime is far worse than his neat little formulas. Uh, as Clark enters the reception area, he, hears, he overhears Amy's comments and tries to talk to her about them. As it turns out, she's not upset at Clark, but upset with her younger brother, Vic, like the pins, but with a K, whom she has had, whom she has had to raise on her own since their parents died, and, has, and he has fallen in with a bad crowd. So Jimmy offers to go spend the evening with Vic, so, which means Clark doesn't really have anything to do, so he heads back to his apartment and decides to experiment with smoking, because that's something you should tease kids. But nothing else to do, let's try smoking a little bit. So he lights it up. Puffs it a little bit, thinks it's garbage, and throws it away. And as he does that, uh, Jimmy enters through the unlocked door. Well, apparently it's unlocked because he just walks right in. And his clothing's all torn. He's got some bruises. His hair's all messed up. And he mentions that he was treated like a drum and that they were a bunch of Ringo stars. He tells Clark that he thinks they're planning a gang war but can't go to the police without proof. So Clark tells Jimmy to head home and let him take care of it. So Clark starts to switch to Superman, but then changes his mind, thinking that this would probably be something that Clark has a better chance to settle. So, uh, exiting the apartment building, he takes a cab to the rough part of town, and after the cab drives off, Clark finds himself immediately surrounded by the gang that Vic is part of. He tries talking to them, but they don't really want to listen, and... Uh, one of them decides to knock him out with a club to finally make him shut up. Pretending to be unconscious, Clark overhears them give Vic a gun with orders to kill the plainclothes cop that patrols the area and is about to pass on his, on his nightly patrol. But Clark's words finally start to sink in and Vic says no, basically summarizing Clark's speech from earlier. But this time the others listen and head home to reflect as Clark comes to. As Bick walks off, Clark realizes that he's proven that there are times when not even Superman needs violence. It's problems I had with this story. Um, and I don't know how much of this is just Kurt Swan or how much of it is just the comics of the time. But these are supposed to be gang members. And granted, things change over time. But you're used to, there, there's a certain style you're used to seeing with gang members. These guys are wearing collared shirts, nice slacks, and dress shoes. Uh, one has a, weather, has a leather coat, and one's got one of those uh, newsboy-type hats. Um, basically, they, other than, other than um, some scuffs on some of the clothing, they look like they're headed for church more than they're going to do some gang battles. So, I mean, maybe that's what a gang would look like in the 40s or 50s. 
Uh, but I wouldn't think they'd still look, they'd be wearing that kind of stuff in the 70s. Um, and after all these years, you expect us to believe that Clark picks now to try smoking? Uh, yeah. Um, but I'm also surprised that they actually showed it. They literally show Clark picking up a pipe, putting the stuff in it, lighting it up, and puffing on it, and then saying, yuck. Uh, that kind of stuff would probably not fly today. I'm surprised it got past the comics code then, but then smoking wasn't seen as bad as it is now, so maybe that's why. Uh, on the positive side, the art here is still really good, especially, even though I didn't like it, the detail when Clark is smoking. It literally looks like he's trying to puff on the cigarette. It's really cool. Um, I thought it was funny that Clark actually puts on a smoking jacket and scarf during his little experiment with the cigarettes, so, or with the pipe. So that was pretty cool. I mean, if he's going to do it, he might as well look the part. And um, this is the kind of thing I miss from recent issues of Superman. Clark Kent. It was cool. Basically, we got a cameo of the as simple, but we never got him in the full costume. He was Clark the whole time, and it was really cool to see that. You don't see that right now. He's not in action comics. I mean, he isn't, he isn't in action comics right now. And as far as on Superman goes, he's walking across the country as Superman, so there's no Clark time. I miss this. There was a third story in this issue, but it was a reprint from the Silver Age, uh, Muto, Monarch of Menace, uh, featuring a, which is a Superman 2966 story. It was written by Edmund Hamilton with art by Kurt Swan and George Klein and was reprinted from Action Comics 338, uh, which, was, which came out in June of 66. So, I'm going to go ahead and play some promos for you real quick, and when we come back, we'll have Action Comics. Coming October 31st, 2010, Superman Forever Radio, a new weekly podcast which will focus on Superman and his family of comics, movies, television shows, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and the latest and classic adventures of the Man of Steel, an in-depth look at a variety of topics throughout Superman's 70-plus years of history. Join host J. David Weeder every Sunday for Superman Forever Radio, coming October 31st, 2010. For more information, go to supermanforever.com. cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. The dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. 
With the growth of Superman podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man. Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com. Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Action Comics magazine. Okay, Action Comics number 408. With a Jan- another January 72 cover date. This one came out November 30th, 1971. With a pretty cool cover by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. That's basically showing uh, a yellow version of Mission Control with only one big screen. And um, Superman saying he can't save the astronaut. And of course it's one of those cool early Bronze Age, late Silver Age covers where you're like, jerk. Um, so um, the title of the first story is The Hero Superman Doomed to Die, written by Carrie Bates, with art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. This time, of course, the editor's Murray Boltonoff. Uh, and Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Jim Schuster. And Again, this story was has not been reprinted. So Superman is called to NASA's Houston Flight Center for an important mission to rescue Argo-1, which is the first single manned mission to the moon and back, and its astronaut, Colonel Carter, both stranded 100,000 miles away from Earth. Superman takes off, but due to some strange mental command, is forced back down to Earth. Of course, it doesn't take long for this news to reach the media, and soon we see that people are quickly losing faith in Superman. This makes him try again, but again the mental force causes him to return to Earth. Upon returning to GBS, Clark is quickly sent, sent yeah, 
Edge quickly sends Clark in front of the cameras to give an editorial, which he has written himself, basically making it appear that Superman only saves who he wants to save. Afterwards, uh, seeing a poster for, two th uh, for 2009, A Space Trek, Clark switches to Superman and heads back to Houston. With less than four hours until Carter runs out of oxygen, Superman builds his own spacecraft, installs plenty of oxygen, grabs a spacesuit, and heads off to space. Since he isn't using any superpowers for this journey, he's able to leave Earth's orbit and soon arrives at the Argo One, which is caught in some kind of vortex. Speaking to Superman telepathically, Carter informs Superman that he's okay, so Superman checks up on Carter with his x-ray vision and sees that he's changed. Carter explains that he saw the vortex on the way back from the moon and changed course to investigate. Apparently, he got caught in it and, beca and, began, yeah, and it caused him to start evolving. When he discovered that Superman was coming up to save him, he used his new mental powers to keep Superman away so that he could continue to, to evolve. Then, using his continually evolving powers, Carter actually starts projecting a message to Earth informing everyone that he prevented Superman from saving him and that he's still a hero. Whew. However, Carter decides that, this, that all this evolution is starting to scare him, so Superman uses some of the metal from his ship to create prongs which he uses to pluck the capsule from the vortex. Before he can do that, the vortex suddenly resets. Superman theorizes that it goes through some kind of a cycle that resets and begins again. So a quick scan with X-ray vision shows that Carter has now regressed to a Neanderthal. To save him, Clark, er, Clark to save him, uh, Superman puts the capsule back in the vortex and, using his X-ray vision, watches Carter until he evolves back up to 20th, 20th century man, then removes it again. He places Carter in his ship, but Carter just grumbles and yells. Apparently, the sudden de-evolution wiped his mind, so he's going to have to relearn everything. As he flies the ship back to Earth, Superman decides that he'll, he's going to come back and build a wall of asteroids around the vortex to prevent future incidents. There are just some mysteries that man is not yet meant to learn. Um, not a bad story. Uh, negatives I have for this one. Uh, once again, uh, people are quick to think poorly of Superman which actually is probably pretty accurate the more I've been thinking about it. Um, if you have someone that does really cool stuff, he, can, he, does, he or she does one bad thing, no matter what it is, people think differently. Uh, look at, um, I can't think of his name right now, but think of the, uh, that Michael, what's his name, that was the Olympic swimmer. He won eight gold medals at the last Summer of Olympics for the United States, and everyone thought he was awesome. He was a hero for our country. Uh, and then, uh, not long after that, he was caught smoking up from a, bo from a bong at a party. Now, I mean, some people still like him just because of what he did for the Olympics, but a lot of people think, you know, don't think much of him anymore. And that was just a couple weeks later. So it's kind of that same thing. I mean, it really happened, so it makes sense. I'm also surprised that Superman didn't make more of a priority to save the astronaut. Um, while I didn't really mention it in my synopsis, he, uh, there's actually a couple pages where he's going through his normal routine of you know, saving people, fly, doing his patrols around Metropolis. Um, and, I mean, apparently he doesn't 
It's like he doesn't care. So I can see how some of the people would feel that way too. I probably, excuse me, unfortunately, especially since it's out of character, would probably feel the same way. Um, and this is one of those times when things would have been a lot simpler if the hero just took a couple seconds to explain what was going on. It probably would have saved him a lot of trouble. Had he told the NASA people that he got some weird mental command that prevented him from going, they probably could have helped him, or it probably would have given him a little bit more motivation to figure out some another way. Um, or even later on, when he goes back to the flight center to get materials to build the spaceship, if he had just said why he was trying to do that, he wouldn't have had them saying, oh, but why? And then guessing the whole time. Granted, it gave a reason for speech balloons on people so we didn't have panels that just had captions. But still, mm. uh, on the plus side, though, this was a pretty good story. Uh, we do have a continuation of the Morgan Edge plot. It, it is mentioned uh, that he's working for Darkseid in this story, uh, even though I didn't mention it before, and I apologize. Um, and one of the parts uh, involving that editorial was to make Superman look bad so that once the astronaut dies, Superman won't be able to show himself his face anywhere on Earth, which will make things a lot easier for Darkseid. And, uh, of course, his is the reaction we see when Carter does his projection to, to, uh, to explain why Superman wasn't helping. And, of course, he's like, darn, he's that hero again. So that was pretty cool. And the art on this is still great. Uh, Swan and Anderson really knocked it out of the park this month. Um, yes. And then the backup feature, um, The Shocking Secret of Super X. <clears throat> this is written by Carrie Bates, with art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. And the editor, again, was Murray Boltonoff. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And this story was actually reprinted in Best of DC number 8, which has a November-December 1980 cover date. Which means I probably could have bought it had I been, you know, able to move or walk. Uh, one day, years ago, high over Metropolis University, a strangely garbed person flew over during a small earthquake, used super breath to prevent a monument from toppling over, used super strength to create a giant scoop, and flight as he filled in the crack of, on the ground with sand. And all this while co-ed Lana Lang discovered Superman's costume compressed into a school textbook she's borrowed. And then this uh, strangely garbed character used super speed as he flew into his dorm room to resume his secret identity of Clark Kent? But to make sense of this, we flash back to the previous day, when we see Superman visiting Professor Smithers. <laughs> From The Simpsons, I guess. The university's top biologist and bacteriologist, where the professor shows that he's been able to create artificial bacteria, uh, the kind, a kind that is helpful, such as a kind that kill, helps kill pain, break fevers, induce sleep, and cause amnesia. However, one of his experiments backfired, causing the bacteria to grow to the size basically of goldfish, and they're continuing to grow. And I don't mean goldfish like the crackers. I mean goldfish like the actual fish you find dead at Walmart. Um, and he mentions that uh, this stuff would cause an epidemic of great proportions if they come into contact with the atmosphere. So Superman takes the bacteria up to space, but the sudden temperature change causes the glass container to break. 
With no, other, with no other alternative, Superman uses his super suction breath to inhale the germs. And a quick trip back to the professor reveals that he is now infected. His super antibodies should dispose of the disease over the next 24 hours, but until then, he must either quarantine himself or wear a specially insulated, sterilized suit at all times. So he creates such a suit, and that's the one he was wearing at the beginning of the story. And of course, he takes a super suit and hides it in his biology book. Now in the present, he finds out that his roommate lent the book to Lana. So, going back to remove his lifelike plastic head mask and gloves, uh, he heads out to find that Lana has discovered the costume. So after a quick trip to the professor's lab, he returns at invisible super speed, snatching the costume and releasing the amnesia germs, which causes Lana to forget that she found the costume or anything like that. The next day, Superman once again returned to the skies over Metropolis, and the mysterious Super X was never seen again. Now, on to the negatives of this story. There's no way in real life that the face mask and gloves would not would fool anyone. No way. Uh, even if they did, Superman uh, Clark's voice would be muffled because he's wearing a mask. Now, granted, maybe it's like what happens with Spider-Man, where people don't notice that he's but I would think this it still wouldn't work in real life um, the other sad part is that we see Lana but she's only in there for like four panels and it's only in there to have the whole I found the costume secret identity plot which wasn't really needed on the plus side uh, the art was great again um, I like how Swan is able to draw a younger Superman that's younger than what we saw in Superman and in the first story of action, but it's also older than what we see when he draws Superboy. So that's really cool. Um, it is a fun little story. Um, I do like how we see some of his experience come into play when he uh, forgets that glass shatters after an extreme temperature change. So that was pretty cool. Carrie Bates is actually really good with, with doing that. Um, later on, uh, early part of the 80s, he's gonna st he starts up the New Adventures of Superboy and takes and also continues that kind of trend of uh, showing that of make, really making it so it's not just a Superman in a boy's body. It's really a younger version. So it's really cool. Uh, and the backup story in this issue was the Adams Phantom Double, featuring, of course. Green Lantern. No, I'm just kidding. It, it, it did feature the Atom. Uh, the writer is Gardner Fox, with art by Gil Kane and Murphy Anderson, and is reprinted from Atom number nine from October November 1963. And that's it for the books this month. Uh, let me play a couple more promos, and we'll go move up to the elsewhere in the uh, DCU. Come on, I have an idea that Batman should look into this. And don't forget Robin! I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman! Bruce, look! The bat signal! Come on, chum! To the bat cave! Car, right? Chicks love the car. I don't play favorites. 
Every criminal must be brought to justice. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. I swear to God. Swear to me! Don't kill me! Don't kill me, man! I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. Legends of the Batman. Everything Batman from the beginning at BatmanLegends.com. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Batgirl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Batgirl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at BatgirlToOracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. Presenting the Amazing Spider-Man Classics Podcast Year 2. Starring myself, John Wilson, along with Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Grant, and your favorite guest hosts of the comics podcasting community. Bringing you the classic 1960s adventures of Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and the gang. As told by Stan Lee, John Romita, Don Heck, Jim Mooney, John Buscema, and more. And to kick the year off, we're running a special episode in March with... Uh, uh, hold on, wait a second. Hey there, webheads. 12 months ago, a very special podcast came onto your iTunes feed. And to celebrate 12 months of that podcast being on your iTunes feed, we thought we'd take you on a special date to the movies. And what a movie it is! Why, it's about our very own webhead spinner Spider-Man, the first installment of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, guest starring one of the Power Rangers. Oh boy, we're in for a good time. So strap yourself in, and here's the hosts. This isn't a way a podcast is supposed to work. Peter, you're seeing the Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie without me? Why no, Betty, I'm seeing it with all my friends, the amazing Spider-Man Classics listeners, and you're invited too. Even Liz Allen? Yes, Betty, even Liz Allen. Okay, as long as Ned can come. You know why I hate you, Leeds? Because you have a right to listen to this episode with Betty. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between your earphones. Episode 28 kicks off the new year with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. And then we continue on in future episodes looking at the further adventures of Spider-Man, an amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, and every guest appearance and cameo we can find. Only at Amazing Spider-Man Classics, found on iTunes and at AmazingSpiderMan.Libsyn.com. December 7th. Earth 2. 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. United States of America, 
was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Okay, uh, other books that were on sale in November of 1971. We have Falling in Love, number 128, which t- uh, does include How to Read a Man's Palm. So this must have started an influx of palm readers. Um, we have Our Army at War, number 240. Featuring, of course, Sergeant Rock. We have Wonder Woman 198, uh, featuring the return to Paradise Island, which again, like uh, like Michael Bradley mentioned a little bit ago, uh, was reprinted from 183. Sure would be nice to see why they didn't finish that. We have Batman number 238, which is a 100-page super spectacular with an awesome-looking Neil Adams cover and the Batman image on this cover. Will would be reused a lot, but this book not just ha- only has a Batman story, which was uh, reprinted from Batman seventy, but also has a Doom Patrol story, a Plastic Man story, a Sargon the Sorcerer story, the Atom, Aquaman, the Legion of Superheroes for some reason, and a second Batman story which doesn't happen too much, and that one's from Batman 75. So the, the one thing I don't get about these 100-page Super Spectaculars is I would think that if you're going to do that, you should probably fill the book up with stories based on that character. You know? I don't know why in a Batman book you would think, oh, hey, let's put in the Doom Patrol and Plastic Man and Sargon and Aquaman, and the Legion, and Adam, since, you know, they most of them really have nothing to do with Batman, ever. Maybe Aquaman and Adam, but still. Anyway, that's not the point. Uh, Ghosts number three, with a really cool Nick Cardi cover. As I've said a lot doing this review stuff. Uh, we have Our Fighting Forces, number 135, which actually has a rather cool... Um, Joe Cooper cover, which seems to feature the death of Captain Storm. Phantom Stranger, number 17, with a nifty Neil Adams cover, which these, I don't know what they're how they does this, but they're so moody, it's so cool. Tomahawk, uh, number 138, with, which presents a different kind of Christmas story. 
it's actually a little early for that, but that's all right. Uh, we have Mr. Miracle, number six, with uh, another fun-looking energetic uh, Jack Kirby cover, which really doesn't have that much to it this time. It looks like I see Granny Goodness, maybe, in the background. But most of it is just Mr. Miracle flashing through the sky, so that's pretty cool. Um, and also features the Boy Commandos versus, versus Agent X. Uh, we have Young Romance, number 178, uh, which also has, features Diet Secrets of the Hollywood Stars. And again, you know what's getting annoying with these covers is they all feature people, guys cheating on these girls. I don't know. It must have been an epidemic. Um, we have a cool uh, Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love, number three, with a cool Jeff Jones cover, which actually looks very 3D with the combination, with the way it's uh, done. I really like that cover. I'm not really interested in reading it, but the cover's really cool. There's another cool Nick Carty cover for House, House of Mystery, number 198. Uh, Teen Titans has a pretty cool Nick Carty cover, although not as moody as the others. It's a little more plain, uh, but it, it's another cool team. Uh, yeah, another cool cover uh, featuring Teen Titans and the Scourge of the Skeletal Writers with a backup feature featuring Superboy meeting uh, a young Green Arrow. Interesting. Uh, we have Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, um, featuring the story Bragadoom. And let's see. We have Weird War Tales number three with another. Ooh, this has a really moody Joe Kubert cover, and it looks like these guys are about to be attacked by Swamp Thing. So that's pretty cool, even though it's not Swamp Thing. Sorry. Uh, we have Young Love, number 91, uh, with the little novelette, novelette, Catch a Falling Star. And, of course, test yourself, are you the romantic type? I like to think I am. And uh, Girls Love, number 165, with another test yourself, Does He Really Love You? I don't know. I hope not. I'm not into guys. Uh, Supergirl, uh, Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane, number one eighteen, which um, looks pretty cool. Looks like Lois is about to get attacked by some shadowy figure. Who does not? No, uh, unexpected, number one thirty one, with a really cool, another cool Nick Cardi cover. This one's a little more moody, but uh, still pretty cool. We have Strange Adventures two thirty four, with which is all reprints. It's got a pretty cool Nick Cardi cover featuring the human icicle, uh, which basically seems to have some uh, looks reminiscent of what you hear about with Doctor or Doctor with Mister Freeze. So that's pretty cool. We have Superboy number one eighty one, and this one features the menace of the mysterious Voyager, and I don't know who that is, but um, it's pretty cool and features a cool Kurt Swan Murphy Anderson cover. And then we have Adventure Comics 414 featuring Supergirl yet again uh, with a story called Vortex. And that looks actually like a really cool Bob Oskner cover. And finally, we have Bat uh, Detective Comics 419 starring Batman and Batgirl. And this is a really, wow, this is a really cool uh, uh, Neil Adams cover. This cover, we actually are looking, we're underwater looking up at the surface, and we see a guy who looks like he's just been thrown in. And um, he's 
tied up to, and I guess he's not supposed to swim, but he's got five, yeah, five weights uh, pulling him down, and all of them are in, like Batman statues. That looks really cool. I don't, I'm so, I don't know who, I don't, I don't care who you are. So, and that's it for this month. So, uh, sorry this episode, uh, sorry if this episode seems rushed. Um, Again, uh, like I mentioned last week, my wife has uh, been in the hospital. I'm trying to do this real quick so that everyone gets an issue, gets an episode. Um, and I'm try also trying to record this at my mother-in-law's house, so I don't want to take up this room with anyone that I have to. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I will see you guys later. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. Superman in the Bronze Age is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where new episodes are posted weekly. Episodes are also posted at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com and supermanhomepage.com. You can also subscribe to this show via RSS feed and iTunes. All images, characters, and music used in the show are for entertainment purposes only. No money is made by the show. Superman is created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Superman is also a copyrighted feature, appearing in Superman DC Publications.